What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica. Meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Mortada El Fadl. Welcome to Sundays with Kate, the podcast series about the films of Kate Blanchett. This is your host, Mortada El Fadl, and I'm excited to go way back in Kate's career to 1999 um, for this week's episode, the year after everybody, including me, met her in Elizabeth, and she got the Oscar nomination and became an international movie star. Um, and the movie that she made right after, or that was released right after, she probably made it before all of that, all the Elizabeth hoopla happened, is An Ideal Husband, based on the Oscar Wilde play. And this is the movie we're talking about today. And I'm so excited and happy to welcome back to the podcast, my dear friend, Chris File. Hi, guys. <laughs> welcome back, Chris. I'm so happy to be back. I'm also so happy to be back. A, I have I had never seen this movie, so I was really thrilled to watch it and to be able to watch it in this context. But also, I'm excited that this is the second movie I've done with you, and they are wildly different movies, uh, no pun intended, um, and very, very different performances from Kate, too. Um, I think a lot of you guys know Chris as the host of This Had Oscar Buzz podcast. and um, when I asked you to do this movie, I was like, is there a conflict? Because this movie, does, I don't remember it having any Oscar buzz, but it did get two Golden Globe nominations. So I'm like, is this a movie Chris would want for his own podcast? But you just well, said immediately, I'll come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's like, um, uh, I mean, twist my arm to make me watch this movie again, because I had a great time with it. But like, it, it's just one of those things that it's like costume dramas, certainly of a certain scale, will always have a certain type of Oscar conversation associated to it. Plus the entire cast, all of the lead women who had just had Oscar nominations and Rupert Everett had almost been nominated for My Best Friend's Wedding. If the Academy was a lot cooler, they would have nominated him. <laughs> yeah. Totally. And this is one of the things that I was thinking about, because when I when I look, you know, we, we will get into like what the movie's about. But the cast here is Rupert Everett, um, three years after his big breakout, like you said, in My Best Friend's Wedding, Minnie Driver and Julianne Moore, who were both nominated for Supporting Actor the year before Kate for Goodwill Hunting and Boogie Nights. And then Jeremy Northam is the the last of the five main characters. And he also break out, broke out a couple of years before this, maybe three years before this, he was Mr. Knightley to Gwyneth Paltrow's Emma. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching him in Emma and I was like, oh, who is this person? Because he's <laughs> going to be great. And then he made this movie and he made other movies and he didn't become as big as the other five years. So this movie reminded me kind of of The Talented Mr. Ripley, which also was a 1999 movie mm -hmm. with Kate. And it had these... Um, amazing sort of actors catching them at the right time early in their career. They were all kind of like hot at that moment. And then they all, in the case of the talented Mr. Ripley, they all went to these big movie star careers, Oscars and everything except for Jack Davenport. <laughs> <laughs> and with an ideal husband, you know, the women 
kind of, I think, had better careers after this movie, especially Kate and Julianne obviously had amazing mm-hmm. careers post this, including winning Oscars and getting nominated and being in an array of movies for both of them, blockbusters, small movies, independent, you name it. They had wonderful movie careers. Rupert Everett sort of got, he's really the lead of this movie. Like his character is the lead. And, and I think this is the movie like he sort of got after his big breakout in My Best Friend's Wedding. Like this is the lead role he got. It didn't lead to a lot, but he's like, he's had a respected career so far since that, since 1999. But I think Jeremy Northam is the one who kind of vanished a little bit. Yeah. And like, I was even looking him up too, because he just seems like the type of actor that you would see in a million different things. And it's true that you'll see him in those type of roles where he pops up and you're like, oh, Jeremy Northam, even if it's not a lead. But there's really not that many roles. I mean, he did The Crown a few years back, but uh, since then, the only other credit is this movie. Hold on, let me get the title right, because it's just the vaguest possible title. Uh, Official Secrets, which I believe has Kira Knightley in it as well. Oh, yeah. That was at Sundance, but I didn't watch, I didn't see it. I was there at Sundance. It was funny, I met the producer was at our hotel, and she was trying to convince me to go see it, but I didn't go. <laughs> I mean... It it it, pro- it looks very much like the type of movie you expect it to be when you read the log line and yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um it's so an ideal husband is based on the Oscar Wilde play and I have to read the IMDb um sort of uh, synopsis of the plot because I just laughed it's like um, laughed at just how wrong they are. The synopsis in IMDb says, London, 1895. Cabinet Minister Sir Chiltern and Bachelor Lord Goring are victims of scheming women. <laughs> so, First of all, there's only one woman with a scheme. Totally, right? <laughs> <laughs> Unless you want to count Lindsay Duncan, who's just like sneering in the background in a few scenes. Um, not enough Lindsay Duncan, though. Um, but this conniving of I don't like that. That makes me upset. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially this this thing at IMDb. I'm sure they got it from some publicist somewhere in 1999, but it's very misogynist. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, so if we talk about the plot, to your point, the, the one scheming women is Mrs. Cheveley, who is played by Julianne Moore. So the story is about um, this minister, Children, that's Jeremy Irons and his wife, uh, Lady Children. That's Kate, and he he sort of took a bribe early on in his career, but now he's very respected, and it's been years. But that bribe sort of like built his career, or at least built the luxury that he's in right now. And so Mrs. Cheveley, who used to be with lady children in school. So Kate and Julianne play um, two women who knew each other at school and detested each other. They keep saying that in the movie (laughs) in their history, that they really detested each other at school. And so she comes back and she she has another scheme and she wants to use this candle in in Lord Chiltern's um, history to make him give a speech in front of the House of Commons to... um, validate her investment in a canal in Argentina. This is all sounds banal. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> she has something it's hold, the most she's banal holding stuff some... about the movie too. It's just like you don't show up for the, this movie for its plot. Like he... No. Yeah, but she's holding something over him 
she and his wife hate each other. And then his best friend is playing by Rupert Everett, who's the main character. And he's sort of the one who he used, he's really good friends also with the Kate character. And he had an affair with the Julianne character in the past. So he's the one with the relationships to all of them. And he sort of holds the key to solve this scheme or to make everybody whole at the end. And then there is Minnie Driver, the last person in the five character in the five main characters who is Lord Chiltern's sister who is ends up falling in love with the Ruben Everett character. That's the plot. Did I do a good job? Yes, that's exactly it. Exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly it. And that's like, you really only need to know like how the people are connected in this movie. And it do- the movie does take a little bit of time and kind of, uh, you know, really establishing what their connections are. And then it's just about the fun of watching these performers together, specifically in the roles that they're in. I thought everybody was so smartly cast in that, like, I didn't feel like I'd seen at least the women play those specific roles in other, um, in other parts of their career. Um, and like the, at least the three headlining women are all on fire. They are so good. Um, and they so are. fun. Yeah. And you, you're certainly right about that. Cause like, if you just like, if you think about Kate and sort of like when she does like the big blockbuster movie, big blockbuster, I can't speak <laughs> when she does the big blockbuster movie, she always plays villains. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but in 1999, she hadn't really played any villain yet. So maybe if this movie was made today, she would be cast as the scheming. I totally thought Mrs. that too, because I was like, if this was like today and they were in this, um, they were like doing the play or doing a version of the movie. They would absolutely, she and Julianne Moore would absolutely switch roles. Yeah. And Julianne sort of persona, especially in the last few years on screen is more of this warm motherly presence. Mm -hmm. So, which is not that lady children is a mother, but she is sort of like the good woman in the whole story. She's the one with principles. She's the one who's holding on to them. I would say even a little too stupidly at points, Mm -hmm. but she is basically the one good person who's uncompromising, but who loves her husband so much and loves, um, you know, her sister-in-law and her friend that there's just an innate goodness coming out of her. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And so that, that's probably what we have seen a lot from Juliet. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And like, there's something to what Kate Blanchett brings to the role that like, it's hard to even describe Lady Chiltern in a way that doesn't sound like she's the boring one. (laughs) You know, the one that like, if you were the performer, you would be like, Oh, that's not the role I want. I want all those other roles. Um, But Kate Blanchett is so like, she really still brings it to this character. And I think um, you can, there's a lot of emotional texture to what she's doing um, that feels really rich. I mean, it's Kate, so of course it is, but like it could have very easily been the boring character. Yeah. And it's, it's always like, I'm always more impressed by people who play, you know, the good character, because to your point, that could be boring. Like I, I think when I was watching this, this is not as an accomplished a movie as Howard's end, but I kept thinking of like Emma Thompson in Howard's end, because Mm -hmm. that is that to me, that is the quintessential good person performance like that's the standard because also in that movie like the emma thompson part could be someone 
who is, you know, she's not as tempestuous as the Helena Bonham Carter character. She's not as evil as the Anthony Hopkins character. She's the one who's just good mm-hmm. um, and who's trying to hold everybody together. And even the story is not really about her. It's about all the other people. Um, and so, but, she, but the performance is so potent that she's just, she's the one you're always looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Kate has enough um, in this movie to sort of be that, but it's also like, it's she, to your point, she brings, I think, a lot more that, um, that I was just fascinated to watch her, especially, um, like, she made me look at Jeremy Northam completely differently because her character is so in love with her husband. Mm-hmm. And you never see sort of like this sort of, um, uh, a couple who've been married for a few years who are still in love, and especially the wife is so in love with the husband. And when she talks about him, I was like, hmm, let me go look at Jeremy Northam again. There must be something here. <laughs> if Kate loves him this much. So these are the scenes like, that really jumped to me to sort of like she's she really plays this uh this love between you know what husband and wife so beautifully like mm-hmm. that that was the part that really jumped out at me well she's so good at developing chemistry with like whoever she shares the screen with um but i mean she does get the best scene in the movie which is the one time that her and lady chiefly are alone together and it's like the second that i think it's many driver leaves the room they're both just like you know what we hate each other we can be done here um and like as they're still walking towards the door they're exchanging barbs at each other in like very you know oscar wilde um smart language that's like you know has its own rhythm that's so fun um yeah and they both cherish saying the word detest yes which is so funny (laughs) ah gertrude mrs chiefly I think it is right to tell you that I wish you never to return to this house again and never to attempt to contact my husband. I see that after all these years you've not changed a bit. I hope I never will. Then life has taught you nothing. It has taught me that a person who has once been guilty of a dishonest and dishonourable action may be guilty of it a second time and should be shunned. Would you apply that rule to everyone? Yes, without exception. Then I am sorry for you, Gertrude. Very sorry for you. I thank you for your sympathy. But it is your departure I would prefer. Do you know, Gertrude, I don't mind your talking morality a bit. Morality is simply the attitude we adopt towards people whom we personally dislike. You dislike me, I am quite aware of that, and I have always detested you. And yet, I have come here to give you some advice. I hold your husband in the hollow of my hand, and if you are wise, you will make him do what I tell him. How dare you class my husband with yourself? Leave my house. You are unfit to enter it. Yeah, that scene is the highlight of the movie. Like, um, And I think they have a couple of scenes together or whatever. Like, you know, this is a movie like Kate and Julianne, I think, are two actresses that we both love. Um, and... They have, and they're also in my mind, and in a lot of people who follow actresses' mind, are linked together because they are linked to Todd Haynes, who mm-hmm. is a queer director. You know, people who are into actresses love. So, but they haven't really been together in movies except for this kind of forgotten movie from 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess they are, and I'm not there, but they they don't have any. Yeah, scenes they don't together. have any scenes together with uh, Julianne Moore playing Joan Baez. Basically, it's great. Um, 
Yeah. Um, and what's great about this is like, I kind of entered this thinking that, you know, my mind would just kind of wander to the hot Todd Haynes of like them, you know, but they were so entertaining and like absorbing that, like, I was not at all surprised that this was a movie that was released as like counter programming in the summer because it's perfect for that. You know, it's just, um, you just kind of get to watch these performers spar together. Um, yeah. And that scene you were mentioning where, where, um, where, you know, the history between the two characters is revealed. And, and, you know, they tell us that they used to be, something happened between them in school. And I love that they don't actually go into detail about what happened between them when, when they were in school, but it's just like, you totally get it. They are completely opposing sides of, of, of like, anything they would be on opposing sides because Lady Children played by Kate is this, you know, innately good person, but also very privileged. So she hasn't really been like her principles haven't really been put to the test. And I think also Kate plays that. Um, And while Mrs. Cheveley is sort of presented, that's a Julianne character as a social climber who is always scheming to sort of get ahead. And you could see like, even as teenagers or, you know, children or however, whenever they were at school, that they would, totally when they were forming these <laughs> their selves basically they would totally hate and detest as they keep telling us each other and so that scene is it's so beautiful to just watch them sort of like verbal verbally spar and and you're like ah i wish there was there was a lot more kate and julianne not just in this movie but just in general mm-hmm. in movies yeah. like we should be so lucky <laughs> <laughs> give them um uh, what's another writer that we could throw at them on the level of Oscar Wilde. I don't know, something. Let them chew into a scene together again. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. And and what I also loved about this movie is, like, this is not, like, the only scene. Like, the movie is, is really good in working these five actors together. And, like, there is, like, different combinations. So I think one other scene that sort of jumped to me is the one between Julianne and Rupert Everett, where also the histories revealed that they were briefly engaged and and then she left him because she found a richer husband and also there is a lot of verbal sparring there Mm -hmm. and this was more of um it's not they don't hate each other exactly but they sort of like have each other's numbers so she knows him and he knows her and and that sort of reveal and the interplay between Everett and Julianne Moore in that scene is also really fun and completely different energy than than what she has with Kate. Yeah, yeah. There, she's like laying towards him, like she's on an invisible. I mean, she is sitting on something, but it's like you could paint in a chaise lounge the posture that she has. I'm kind of trying to do it right now, and it's just like it's this great <laughs> flirtation scene because like the things that are coming out of their mouth may not necessarily be flirtation at all time, but like it, they're just totally, you know, uh, they're feeling out what might be happening. And what is it brings you here tonight? I came because you asked me to. And because you were curious. I suppose. Why did you ask me? Because I was curious also to see whether you'd come and you did. I see you are quite as willful as you used to be. Far more. I've greatly improved. I've had more experience. (laughs) Too much experience can be a very dangerous thing, Mrs. Cheveley. Why don't you call me Laura? I don't like the name. You used to adore it. Yes, that is why. 
I'm glad you brought that scene up too, because that was another standout for me. Um, and it's like for a movie that may not be all that accomplished in its craft or whatever, you know, something that's a standout. I do think it's really well directed because everybody has chemistry with each other. Every performance feels like you can see the version of it where it just like pushes in too far on, um, like the dominant character trait, like, and it wouldn't be as funny and it wouldn't be as fun if like Minnie Driver was more overtly flirtatious. If, uh, Julianne Moore was like literally twirling a mustache evil, or if like Kate was this wounded, uh, whatever. And it never goes all into like, uh, characters with them. So it's like, and that was the scene where the movie kind of cl- that idea clicked in mind for me of like, this is all of these performances are so well calibrated. This is a well-directed movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I didn't think of the direction exactly because I was just watching the actors, but this is a very good point you bring that to sort of build the atmosphere to let these actors play with each other mm-hmm. and to sort of also just shoot them like together and separately in a way that you sort of, you sort of capture the performances. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree with you. It is really well directed. Um, we didn't talk about Minnie Driver, but I think she has, like when I was reading, doing my research about the movie, um, I think I I found out um, a bit uh, that Oliver Parker, who wrote and directed this in his adaptation, he sort of beefed up her part mm-hmm. and he cut a couple of subplots for Mrs. Cheveley, which is the Julianne Moore character. I think there was a subplot about a bracelet that she had, and so we we don't get the bracelet. It's a it's a quick ninety minute movie too, so you can tell that they cut some corners on the text. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, it is. It is. I was so happy to find out that it's only ninety minutes. Um, so we got a little, we got more of Minnie Driver, and so she plays. And I think this was more to I think to put a romance at the center of it. Um, so even there is the scheming Mrs. Chevely, and there is the husband and there is the argentina plot and all these things are happening but at the at the bottom she's she sort of plays like she's supposedly younger than the others um a little bit and sort of everybody looks at her as the young sister and but she's trying to show as she's trying to show them she's mature and like she kind of loves lord goring and i think what's really beautiful about the mini driver performance is that the text doesn't really tell you at the beginning that she loves him but you get it from the way that every time he's in she's in the room with Rupert Everett the way her body moves the way she flirts with him the way she talks about him or to him it's like i love you i love you i love you like it's very evident in the performance that it just made that central romance so much better and then of course by the end of the movie he realizes he loves her too and you know we got the happy ending yeah. they're literally <laughs> there's the a wedding, wedding at the end. <laughs> No, I loved Mini Driver in this movie. There's um uh all of that is true that you um describe that she's like so in love with him all the time and like trying to uh you know as was the custom of the time to not be uh too out there, I guess. Um get him to know that, but there's something so playful about her performance that just like feels like a real uh balance from what everybody else is doing that still makes what also could have felt like a more contrived character or a more um or a less essential character to the plot um feel really um part of the alchemy of what this movie is doing um and it's Mini Driver. I feel like we don't get enough Mini Driver, um, especially in 
I get, well, I mean, she's done stuff like played Carlotta in Phantom, but that's like, that's the version of the over the top that I'm glad that this movie isn't. Um, but yeah, she brings a really like fun, fizzy, playful energy to it that I really appreciated. And this movie is like, it's an Oscar Wilde play, but it's not camp at all. I think the only sort of like when I was reading reviews about it, there was a lot of reviewers who mentioned that Rupert Everett is camp. And, you know, you know, critics, especially straight cr- critics, will say that about um, queer performance. But this is Oscar Wilde. He was camp for sure. And I think Rupert Everett brings camp just a little bit of it because everybody else is too real. So he brings just a little bit of it to sort of wink, wink, tell us that this is Oscar Wilde. This is like, yeah, forget about Argentina and that stupid plot. Forget about these people. This is about having fun with these characters. And so, and he gets the best lines. And I don't know, does he get the best lines or (laughs) it's just his performance? (laughs) I mean, like a few of them that he got to say... Um, are like very, very famous Oscar Wilde quotes that like when you see it quoted, you don't see Oscar Wilde, comma, an ideal husband. It's just Oscar Wilde. Like it's one of the like billboard Oscar Wilde quotes. What was the, you have it in our outline. It's the uh, learning to love yourself is like the most important relationship or something. I butchered. Uh, to To love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. I am not Oscar yeah. Wilde, obviously. Yeah. That's like, you're right. That's like so famous. Like you, you hear it. And in the movie, it sort of just comes in the middle of a conversation he's having. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like, it's not like they pause and like, okay, deliver the famous Oscar Wilde quote. No, it's just like, it happens in the conversation, mm-hmm. but you, you still snap. You're like, hmm? what happened? And this idea that he's giving a camp performance to, it's like, I think that's, a misread of the character. I think the character serves that function and is supposed to be that type of guy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, absolutely. it's not. I mean, not to say that Rupert Everett isn't bringing something to the performance, but like, it's not. He's playing what the character is supposed to be, versus bringing something that's his own invention. You know? Yeah. And I think his eyebrows play a big part in this performance, <laughs> which is so funny. There's always one eyebrow raised and it's just, it's just so funny. And it's like, I never saw like an actor give so many different emotions with his eyebrows. Like he's surprised, the eyebrows go up, he's in love, the eyebrows goes up or move to the side. He's like happy, the eyebrows do something. It's just, it's, it's a total <laughs> amazing eyebrow performance. <laughs> yeah. One of the other things that he says, I think, I think all of the quotes that I put in our outline were said by Robert Everett. Um, this is, I think, it, he has, like, you know, all these, like we said, all these um, actors get, like, a one-by-one a, a one scene or a two-by-two two two scene. Like, they get to have a scene where two of them play. So one of them is he has a scene with Kate. And, you know, she's, she's, telling, she's telling him about her dilemma, about, like, you know, she feels betrayed by her husband because he's not the ideal husband that she thought he was um, and, you know, this messes with her principles. And he tell, and he says to her, it's not the perfect, but rather the imperfect who have a need for love. Um, and I was like, oh, Rupert Everett, you really deliver these <laughs> lines so well. He's perfectly cast. He's perfectly cast. Yeah, he is. Um, is there any other scene, Chris, that jumped out at you that we haven't talked about? Um... I mean, all of Minnie Driver's scenes, but I can't really pinpoint the one. Um, she's just 
solid in all of them. Uh, I guess the only thing that I would pinpoint, and it's more so like the early like party scene, because she's not in it as much as you hope that she will be. Um, but Lindsay Duncan is a lot of fun. And of course, she's because she is Lindsay Duncan and she's cast in a movie, she's latched on to Julianne Moore as the villain to be the kind of like, yes, and also whenever... Um, like there's an opportunity to, you know, kind of look down her nose at anybody. Um, she's Julianne Moore's hype machine. <laughs> yes, basically, basically. <laughs> at first, when she showed up, I was like, "Why isn't Lindsay Duncan on the poster too?" Um, but she's not really in the movie, so. Yeah, she has like three scenes maybe, but all of them include Julianne, and it's mm-hmm. like she's always just like, hmm, "Mrs. Cheveley, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna say? <laughs> what other scandal are you gonna brew?" And it's like, I think her role is to sort of tell us, ooh, this woman is mischievous. This is this is the villain of this piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she does it so well. And it's like, it's it's like an exposition part because she's just telling us about the Julianne Moore character. But you don't notice it until later on. You're like, oh, that's what you were doing because she's just being so lovely and mm-hmm. a little bit mischievous. She's slightly less mischievous, but she enjoys all the mischief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I was thinking about, like, why is this movie forgotten? Like, it's not forgotten, forgotten. Like, during, if you are a listener to this podcast, we have, talk, we have talked about some movies that are more forgotten than, than An Ideal Husband. Um, and like, but it's, it's a movie that hasn't really endured, even though, like, at the time of its release, it, would, it made, like, people saw it. It made enough money, I think, mm-hmm. to, to be For seen. This level and of movie, it, absolutely. Yeah, it made $18 million in America, so that's nothing to, like sneeze at um and it's also like it was not ecstatically reviewed but it was well reviewed and people seem to enjoy it but you know nobody talks about today talks about it today even though it has all these um actors who we still talk about all the time and we're obsessed with i mean i am for sure (laughs) um so i was thinking about like why it hasn't endured and like one of the things that that i can't maybe the oscar wilde of it all i think oscar wilde is um it's hard to adapt, and I, I can't think of any movie adaptation of Oscar Wilde that has endured really. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can correct me if there is one, but I tried to look, and there, there, I couldn't think of any. Um, and also, I think maybe because it's like all his plays are about, like what's successful about this movie, which is the interplay between the actors and the actors knowing to deliver these witty lines. But maybe that sort of works better in the theater. Um, especially there is a scene in this movie like oh where you remember like this is a play where Mm -hmm. like there is a scene in two rooms in a house and they open the door between the rooms and one room has a character and the other has two other characters (laughs) and that third character is supposed to be listening to the other two characters and I I was like oh like this this must have been really hard to make into a movie like Mm -hmm. on stage you could just see everybody and there will be like a division between the two rooms or something and you could see everybody acting at the same time but like the back and forth back and forth and i think maybe this is where why this movie is is not as successful as it is because they couldn't transfer all of the oscar wildness of it mm-hmm. to get the 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 full impact of his words and of his story well and i mean like yes i think you're right i think especially at um adapting oscar wilde is probably incredibly difficult um, for the screen. And like this, this movie does it pretty, I think it does it well, but also straightforward. Whereas like 
I think one of the reasons why maybe uh, the movie's forgotten or like underseen is because uh, certainly in the past 20 years, like uh, since this movie's come out, costume dramas or costume uh, light comedies like this one is always have to like they they become more try hard i guess for lack of a better word and that it has to be incredible opulence or some type of anachronistic point of view or you know something it has to be uh much bigger than what this movie is doing whereas this movie is just kind of focused on the text focused on the characters um and i i mean i don't want to use a boring phrase like uh historically appropriate or something but it's you know it it's has much more modest intentions and spends its energy on providing a good adaptation yeah and it's it's like for an oscar wilde adaptation it, it to your point i think it just plays it straight mm-hmm. like there you know there is no varnish to this nobody's like, like there is no sumptuousness in anything not in the performances except for robert everett eyebrows not in the costumes not in the production design there is even the direction, it's good in that, you know, he's allowing these actors to play together, but, but there is nothing fancy about it. And fancy is a word I think of when I think of Oscar Wilde. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess, too, it's like for both of, I mean, Mini Driver didn't have other major projects going on this year that, like, it got wrapped up in an awards thing. But I think for... Um, Kate and Julianne, they were definitely overshadowed by other movies that year because, like, Julianne gets nominated for End of the Affair. She's also in Magnolia, Cookie's Fortune, which, like, Cookie's Fortune, that's the one that I haven't seen, but it's also has the benefit of being a Robert Altman movie. Um, she has a map of the world the same year. A map of the world, which, like, she's not in a ton of that movie. But, like, when Julianne Moore is getting the critics' prizes, they're lumping that movie in with, like, all these other movies. And this Kate, one was lumped by the National Board of Review and the National Society of Film Critics for Julianne. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and, I, I mean, maybe I would have to watch the other ones, but, like... And obviously there's some recency bias because I just watched this movie today. But, I mean, it might be my favorite of Julianne's performances in 1999. And maybe that's partly because it's so different than a lot of what she does. She's played villains since, but they're, like, witches. They're, you know, dragon ladies. They're not this witty. No, no. And, like... Like that thing I was saying about the performances never push it too hard. I don't think she pushes villainousness all that hard. And like a lot of the horrible things she says, she says with a smile. Yeah, and she's um, a lady. She's still a lady. Like, like yeah. in sort of composure and the way to speak, she's the same as Kate. Like mm-hmm. they're both sort of like playing these genteel women of a certain type of privileged women in 1895 England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, Kate Blanchett also has Pushing, Pushington and Ripley this year. And, like, I can see maybe why, you know, we w- don't talk about it for Kate because of the character she's playing. Even though, like, I think she, ba- considering the type of character she's playing, I think she's much better than you maybe, or gives a more interesting performance than you expect. But, like, <laughs> she's so amazing in Ripley that, like, I, I get why, you know, it got buried among that. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> totally. I think I think you're absolutely right. There were just were other things happening, especially mm-hmm. for Kate and Julianne that year. That's like a good a good way of thinking about this movie. Um, so I'm going to be a little catty for the next couple of minutes. <laughs> I'm going to be as catty and mischievous as Mrs. Cheveley. Um, so earlier this year when Kate was doing, or actually this is last year now, it's a year ago, because um, we were in 2021. So in 20, a year ago when she was doing all the press for Mrs. America, it wasn't either a podcast she did with The Hollywood Reporter or she did something on Instagram with Sarah Paulson where they just talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And I think it was in that Sarah Paulson Instagram live thing where they were talking about hierarchy on movie sets or on the show. And I think Sarah was saying something about like, she was that Kate was the star of the show and she's in every episode and whatever. And Kate says this anecdote, which was very funny. She's like, she's like, I don't know what that means. Or she was, she was basically trying to deflect that she was the star of Mrs. America and Mm -hmm. that she's not hierarchical. I can't remember the exact words that she said about that, but basically she then says, the only time that the word star was ever mentioned on a set of hers was early on in her career. She was in the movie with another actress. And the, that actress told her on set that I'm the star of this movie, not you. <laughs> is it this movie? Was it Julianne? So, no, I don't think it's Julianne. So this is, okay, everybody listening, this is just mm-hmm. me making... Um, projections i just think, I think in I 1999 when they shot this movie um and kate has more scenes with mini driver when they shot this movie mini driver probably was just nominated for an oscar kate was this unknown australian actress whose only fame was a movie nobody saw called oscar and lucinda and just being a theater actress in australia so and this was before elizabeth was released so i'm thinking because it's mini driver <laughs> Oh my god. I mean, if it is, Mini Driver would be wrong. Um, But, you know, I'm basing this on nothing. It could have been Pushing Tin, which also happened that year, and it could be Angelina Jolie. It's someone. (laughs) So you think it's Angelina Jolie? wasn't. I mean, she had an Emmy at that point, but 99 is also the year that she gets her Oscar, so. Yeah. So so anyway, um, if you're listening to this, and you have guesses, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole, it's Nicole Kidman barging into the Eyes Wide Shut orgy where Kate Blanchett, also 1999, is the voice of the uh, one uh, attendee who rebels. Yeah. See, it never, like, I was trying to think of who this might be. It never even for a second crossed my mind that it could be Julianne Moore. Also, just because Julianne doesn't strike me as somebody who would say that. And not yeah. that Minnie is. I think Minnie is very funny, but also, like, she was really very young at that point. They were all young. Mm-hmm. But I think Minnie maybe just from what she was going through in 1999-98, I would think she was probably said. But the I mean, Minnie of today probably like won't say it. She only has, with Gwyneth, right? She has no scenes in The Talented Mr. Ripley with Gwyneth. That's why I, I didn't think of Gwyneth. Yeah. But Gwyneth could have said it. I don't it could know. Have just some been press. someone who's not <laughs> even famous to us in America from one of her Australian movies or something. Yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. We actually, last week we did um, on the podcast, we did Thank God He Met Lizzie, which 
Kate is supporting in that, and the lead character is played by Francis O'Connor. Mm-hmm. They also don't have any scenes together, but it could have been also Francis. Another candidate is Francis O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the Katniss Hour, the Mrs. Cheevely five minutes of this podcast have now ended. <laughs> So we will get back to a little bit more about uh, an ideal husband in a minute. But before that, I wanted to say that Sundays with Kate is made out of love and is available free of charge for all to enjoy. However, there is a cost to making and maintaining a podcast. If you enjoy the pod and want to support, go to our website, sundayswithkate.com, and click on the support link on the main menu on top or on the donation button on the right side menu. Every little bit helps. Or you can also support the podcast by adding a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find this podcast. That would also really help. Thank you. But Chris, I wanted to ask you about Julianne Moore. Um, So when I did an episode about Dame Judi Dench was... um, she said something that stuck in my mind she's like she said to me I think of you as my Dame Judi Dench friend because I love Dame Judi and I am your Dame Maggie Smith friend because she loves Maggie Um, and I was like you know that's a very good way to think of friends because you know there are a lot of us who are actress obsessed and um, definitely Kate is my number one I love Dame Judi but Kate remains my number one but when I think of Julianne Moore, I immediately think of you, Chris, because oh, I, I love think she's this. your, she's your favorite, right? <laughs> I mean, definitely, especially like in the time where I was like really locking into uh, movie obsession in my youth. It was like basically the perfect time to be uh, enamored with Julianne Moore. She was in a million things in the span of like five years. Um, Incredible in all of them. Um, And I I mean, I think it's just one of those early fandoms that just won't die, even though she doesn't do as much now. Um, I mean, she has, I I was going to say she has the, um, Stephen King show on Apple TV Plus coming out soon, which normally would be the type of thing that I'm like, eh. But because she's in it, I'm incredibly curious. Um, and with Joan Allen. Um, I love Joan Allen. Um, she's yeah. also in Woman in the Window, Chris. Don't, don't, oh, don't, don't I, bury that. <laughs> I, I, I keep forgetting that she's in Woman in the Window with her Map to the Stars wig as well. Or, uh, I think, it, it blonde, you know. Um, but yeah, so I on mean, your podcast, this had Oscar Buzz, which is a wonderful podcast. You guys, when you have guests, you ask them about their origin Oscar story. So uh-huh. I want to flip the chair on you and ask oh, you about okay. your origin Julianne Moore story. So listeners of this podcast know my origin Kate Blanchett story is that I saw her in Elizabeth and the love never died since that day. Mm-hmm. And it just grows and grows. And that was like the movie when I was just like, who is this? Um, so what is your origin Julianne Moore story? Chris? This is going to be so shameful. I forget. I, um, we've both been on the mixed reviews, right? Um, yes. I, I did a Julianne Moore episode with them. Shout out to, um, Gavin and Louie. I'm, yes, I'm not sure them. if I mentioned this there, but, um, this is to my great shame. Not really, because I actually like this movie a lot. Um, for a mid nineties comedy, but it's nine months. <laughs> nine months is my, uh, Julianne Moore origin. Um, 
Yeah, and she's way better than she has any right to be in that movie. Um, that very, very silly movie where uh, their birthing doctor is Robin Williams in, like, uh, a Russian accent or something like that. Um, Joan Cusack's in it and is really funny. Um, but yeah, like, I don't I don't think people even realize she's in that movie. Um, and partly because that was the movie when the... Um, uh, when Hugh Grant first had Scandal, so like it, that completely overshadowed even the movie at the time. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, it's that. But I mean, in terms of being like, oh, she's the one. It was probably 1999 with me because of Magnolia. And I loved, loved, loved Magnolia as a weird uh, 12, 13 year old. Um, and then, of course, like afterwards, it was the hours and uh, far from heaven. And uh, around that time, I discovered safe. I obviously didn't see safe in theaters. Um, you should arrest my parents if they had taken me to see that when I was uh, eight or nine, um, if they had done that. Um yeah, I mean, she's still fascinating. You mentioned, like, she didn't seem like the type of person that would say to Kate Blanchett, I'm the star, you know? Like, she doesn't seem like that type of person. And it's really true. And we've also talked on my podcast before, like, Oscar speeches where you can tell that someone's a good person. Um, and we've used her as an example. Um, she does a lot in um, advocating uh, for gun legislation right now. That's, like, her main cause. Um and she's very outspoken about it. So I appreciate that about her as well. Um, yeah. yeah. So I mean, my I... next question to you is, um, if you had seen this movie before Magnolia, would it have been the same love? Would it have been the same way? I mean, I kind of think so. This movie has a real reverence for her. And it's partly because she's playing the villain. She's but, playing the fun part. She's yeah, it's the most yeah. fun part. Yeah. But like, it's also that the movie has a reverence for her. You can tell that she is having a ball playing this character and it's a great performance too. So, I mean, I, I definitely would have responded to it. And I think it's easy to see how like the critics prizes all got like, here's four movies Julianne Moore was in. She's our best supporting actress. And it's because they're all so different. Um, and but like, I think it, yeah. it was probably, like Magnolia was the most critically acclaimed of these movies. So it was probably, yeah. uh, certainly I mean, everything else movies. obviously added to it, but Magnolia mm-hmm. was And I think, was one. she SAG nominated for Magnolia? Because it's, it, she's nominated for lead this year for The End of the Affair, which I think she's quite good in, but it's a movie that doesn't have any footprint beyond her nomination. Yeah. Um and I love her in the end of the affair. I think it's it's one she's of so the, good, so good. Um, yeah. um, so my favorite Julianne performance is just like it's Laura in the hours. I can't like yeah. <laughs> it's like I think she's she's done better movies. She's done more impactful movies, but that's the one that is just like it's like it touched my heart like no other of her performances. Mm-hmm. Um, what's yours? Probably safe. Um, I just it's. I just don't know if I've seen a performance like that anywhere else ever. Um, it's almost like hard to describe. And it's this, you still get this complete sense of who 
the woman is that she's playing while she's going through, uh, what's the actual words they use? It's like, uh, uh, and she's basically allergic to the entire world around her. And it's of course an allegory for AIDS and, um, takes on this almost like science fiction horror level of like, uh, it's a completely different movie now as we become more and more aware of global warming, um, and climate change. Uh, and it's, it's like watching someone, uh, holding on to the light inside of them that is dying, but in a lot of different contexts, like it's what optimism looks like for her. It's a very haunting ending. Um, what, panic is like for her what the mundane is like in her uh, everyday life um yeah it's just i don't know if i've seen another performance that's quite like it um i don't know if i've seen a, another film that's quite like it though there's certainly films that have tried um yeah like she's just one of those performers that sometimes the best thing about them you know that it's something special but you can't put your finger on the exact thing about it and that's like the performance of that for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love her. Safe is amazing and she's amazing in it. Um, so Safe is your favorite Julianne Moore. So I'm, I want to do something quickly with you. Hopefully you're up for this. I know you, on your podcast, you play games. So that inspired me to do just a quick game. I chose six other Julianne movies and I'm, I'm just going to do, um, I'll pit two together and you choose one quickly. We're, we're going to do this fast. Oh, like a rapid fire. Okay. Like rapid fire. Is this movie or performance? It's whatever you want it, which oh, whatever okay. you want it. Let's make it, let's make it performance. Okay. And then it's just six. So it's going to be rapid fire. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> a single man versus children of men. A single man. For a single man versus Magnolia. Magnolia. Magnolia versus Still Alice. Still Alice. Still Alice versus The Kids Are Alright. The Kids Are Alright. The Kids Are Alright versus The Hours. Uh, The Hours. The Hours versus Far From Heaven. Far From Heaven. (laughs) (laughs) I just keep picking the other one, but like, I kind of think that's true. I was like, do I know you, Chris? Or... (laughs) Well, I did hesitate on sticking with The Kids Are All Right because, like, that's another performance of hers that I feel like is really unlike a lot of her other performances. She never really gets to be outright funny, like, haha funny. She's funny in An Ideal Husband, but it's because she's an asshole um, in the movie. But, like, I think she's so genuinely funny in that movie. I mean, not to, like, diss Annette in any way, but I really wish that she had gotten the attention that Annette Benning had gotten that year for that movie. Um, she's wonderful, but Annette gets that scene. Of yeah, she has the big uh, scene and then, like, dominates the whole uh, last yeah. section of the movie. She's the top, Chris. You can't help it. I know, I know. It's uh, Oscar doesn't like a bottom. <laughs> but like, you know, just these movies that we just mentioned. Classics all. She's had a wonderful career mm-hmm. in all of these movies. She does make a lot of movies. So there is a lot of movies that are not so great. But just having been in, in just these ones that we just mentioned, amazing. Yeah. I I mean, I've seen a lot of those movies that are not very great. I got to a certain point. I know exactly which one it was, actually. It was Next, the Nicolas Cage movie Next with Jessica Biel. I was like, okay, I can't keep seeing everyone. (laughs) Can't. Yeah. 
But then you get something like this, which is completely like nobody talks about. And then it's such a delight. Like I had such a wonderful time. I've seen this movie like a long time ago, but it still didn't remain in my memory um, that much. But it was last night when I watched it to talk to you. It was such a, a delightful 90 minutes with these actors that I love. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'll watch this again. It was such a good time. Yes. And one of the things that was just a delight to find, um, although I found them a few years ago, like a few years ago when, um, when Carol made it to the Oscars, there is a fantastic picture, and I'll link it in the notes, of, on the red carpet of the Oscars, the year of Carol, of Todd Haynes between Kate and Julianne. Um, and I, I remember seeing this. Oh, I'll send it to you immediately. I have loved um, that. I love that photo so much, and I immediately tweeted it out. And it's one of my favorite photos ever because I love Todd. And like I said earlier, you know, in my mind, he's linked with these two actresses, with Kate and Julianne. And you and I, we talked on this podcast about I'm not there, the Todd Haynes movie that they were both in, but there were no pictures of them. And I remember in my mind, I'm always thinking, why do Kate and Julianne? actually never get photographed together. Um, it's because they're too busy working. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so since since that year at the Oscars, that was the first picture of them together in a very long time. And so I went immediately into a Google thing of looking at where have they ever been photographed together. And lo and behold, I found a picture of them at Cannes for An Ideal Husband, because An Ideal Husband was chosen as the closing movie of 1999. There was no premiere. I don't know if there was a premiere or not. There's a closing night, so there must have been a screening. But there are only photos of them at the photo call, like the morning, you know, that morning, um, which I've shared with you. And, I, and for our listeners, they'll be in the notes. And so I was like, and there were such cute photos, you know, cute is never a nice word to say, but they are cute in that they seem to really enjoy being together in those photos. They're looking at each other and smiling and laughing, and it's like a fun time for them. And so, um, so yeah, so this movie closed Cannes, and you were just making a point um, before we were on mic that it's one of the best Cannes closing movies. <laughs> they like, Cannes closing movies are usually notoriously bad. Like, E.T. closed Cannes, and that's good. This is good. But nothing leaps to the top of my head. I'm sure someone who's listening uh, knows one and is probably yelling at me, yelling at me right now for <laughs> yes, whatever for... <laughs> it is. But, like, you know, closing festival films are never really the best. But, like, this is actually a good one, and, like... It's odd that it was the closer, but like, it makes sense that it wasn't maybe in competition. Yeah. I mean, I think it was just about to open in Europe. So probably that's why they yeah. chose it the closer. And you're right. Like closing movies are usually an afterthought because it's like about everybody watch all the movies and everybody got their awards and everybody kind of just wants to go home. And they're like, no, you have to sit here for a two hour movie. So I just want to say, if we're talking about this movie sort of within the context of Kate's career, like one of the themes that I have gone back to is that um, in my assessment of Kate Blanchett's career, I think that after Elizabeth, she made like this concerted effort to make as many different movies from Elizabeth as she could. Um, and did things like Pushing Tin and The Gift and Talented Mr. Ripley, Modern, 50s where different genres like a gothic horror um sort of comedy um she did things like veronica garen and like 
most of them, like that period between 99 and 2004, most of them didn't work, but she got to work a lot and with different directors and in different themes and genres that I think it sort of gave her the confidence, the experience to sort of get that 2004 to today, basically, where she is at the top of her game. Um, like, I think starting with The Aviator is when the fruits of those, I would call them years in the wilderness, <laughs> have paid off for her. Uh, but this movie, I think she, she did before Elizabeth came out. So I don't think it's part of that. And in a way, like, if you just look at it from, like, if you compare those two movies, they're both sort of costume dramas, um, not the same Oscar era. Oscar Lucinda but... probably had something to do with her casting in this movie. Yes, probably. But I think this movie is probably not one of the ones that she chose to differentiate herself from Elizabeth. But somehow, it's still a very different role than Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And like you could see that people might have drawn uh, lazier comparisons too. Like, oh, it's just another costume movie. But and it's also an incredibly different character and performance than what she does in that movie yeah it is so i think we both would say everybody should watch an ideal husband it's such a fun time right chris absolutely so chris this was a wonderful conversation i enjoyed every second of it thank you so much for coming i miss you i hope i get to see you soon yes me too um i just got my second shot of vaccination i'm ready to see all my friends i know you're vaccinated so hopefully we'll be able to see each other soon yes um but before you go um let our listeners know where they can find you and your work um, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. My podcast is This Had Oscar Buzz. Uh, you can find us on all podcast platforms um, and on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Thank you so much, Chris. And you can find me on Twitter at M-E underscore says and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Sundays with Kate. And until next time, thank you for listening.